This morning, we are finishing up our series in the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi Malachi chapter 3, we will be starting in verse 13. But as you're turning and before we dive in, let me pray for our time. So Lord, we give you thanks uh, for another Sunday where we gather. This is your day, so help us to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I do pray that you would overcome any resistance of our hearts and our minds to your word and what you have for us. Pray that your scriptures would encourage us, would strengthen us, challenge us. More than anything, Lord, that you would strengthen us in Christ. That is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing and swings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Larry Crabb, a noted counselor, and um, author wrote a good book with a good title. The book's called Shattered Dreams, God's Unexpected Path to Joy. And the summary of this book is essentially this, that in a fallen world, we're gonna experience various shattered dreams, right? Significant losses, significant disappointments. And underneath those shattered dreams can swell up questions. Questions about God. Where is he? Why is he not delivering? Now, this is not just a random book endorsement. I actually want to tie it to Malachi. So if the people of Malachi's day were to write a book, the title would be very fitting if it was this. Shattered Dreams. Why serve God? Exclamation point. This is a subtitle. Why serve God? Exclamation point. We're angsty. Exclamation point. So to help us to understand the angst of Malachi, I'll give us basically the briefest of history. 
Way before Malachi stepped on the scene, there was this promise that God's people knew about. This promise that was made to Abraham. We find it in Genesis 12. And this promise was that God would be faithful to Abraham and through Abraham would be this great nation of people. And that they would be blessed and that God would provide this glorious promised land for them to dwell in and to rest. But by the time Malachi hits the scenes, uh, the scene, things don't look so promising at this point in their history because they're no longer a great nation. They are currently not being blessed by the Lord because of their own sin. And as far as the promised land is concerned, a place of security and rest, they're right now under the rule of Persia. They have no king like they had in the past that was to lead them to righteousness their temple is insignificant, whereas before, the glory of the Lord was present with them. Their dreams are shattered. Lots of angst. They've become cynical, hard-hearted, and to be clear, the problem was never with God. It was that the people turned their back on God. But nonetheless, the people of Malachi's day are disillusioned. They're doubting God. They're blaming God. And we see this throughout the book of Malachi. Especially what Malachi does is lay out six complaints between God and his people. And so this morning, we'll take up the sixth and the last complaint. Again, chapter 3, verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And here's God's answer. You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So God begins by saying, your accusations are hard against me. And the reason they're hard is because God's people at this point have hard hearts. And here's what they're saying. It is vain, meaning worthless, useless. To serve God. And as they look out, what they see is that there is no profit for them, no benefit of being faithful to the Lord. And in fact, what they see is the arrogant are the ones who are blessed. They are the ones who are prospering. And not only that, but from the people's perspective, they're actually getting away with it. Does God even see? Does he even care? Now, I want to put Malachi side by side with Psalm 73, because we're going to see the same angst that we see in Malachi chapter 3 and Psalm 73. I just want to read the first few verses of Psalm 73, and the question is, have you experienced this kind of angst? Here we are, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity and evil conceits of their minds know no limits." They scoff, they speak with malice in their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Listen to this language of the mockery of God. 
Therefore, people turn to them and drink up waters in their, their waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? And so far, for the psalmist, here's his conclusion. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. So what's the complaint between the people in Malachi's day and the people of Psalm 70, or the, the psalmist in Psalm 73? It's this. The righteous are struggling, the wicked are prospering, and they seem to get away with it. And God doesn't seem to care. Why should we serve him? In the language of Malachi, says, it is vain to serve God. In the language of Psalm 73, all in vain have I kept my heart pure or clean. As a college pastor, for 16 years of my life, um, I met with students that were constantly struggling with this tension of, is it worth it to serve God wholeheartedly? They wrestled deeply with this tension. I remember a couple of students coming to my mind immediately Matt was a student who you could say was a poster child for his youth group at his church, a leader among his peers. He got to college. I still remember Matt's last Bible study with me. As I was teaching, I just noticed the, his countenance, his face. He had grown hard in his, uh, just his posture. And so afterwards, I said, hey, Matt, let's go for a walk. So we took a walk. So what's going on? He said, I'm struggling. He says, I... Um, I'm looking around in college, and I'm just not having any fun. Looking around at all my friends, all my peers, they're having the party life. Like being, being a Christian right now just isn't cool. And I'll pick it back up later after college, but right now I just want to have fun. And he walked away. Think about Josh, a student that was in a fraternity. I went to meet with him in his fraternity one day. Spread out on his desk are all his books, his studies. He was a diligent student. He said, can I be honest? He said, here's what's really hard. He said, I work my tail off and I try to honor God. I try to honor God with my studies. But I look at all my fraternity brothers, drinking, having sex. They're having the time of their life. There seems to be no consequence for them whatsoever. And here I am struggling. Later, he would walk away as well. The tension of in a fallen world, the grass seems so, so much greener on the other side at times. Have you experienced this? It's not just on a secular campus. This was me in seminary. Okay, I was in, I think, first or second year of seminary, and life was challenging. There was one night uh, where Tiffany and I were just, we were venting. It was late at night, and I was basically saying, I, I don't know that I can do this anymore. I have theology books coming out of my ears, right? I have um, a house that I was renovating that I was way over, uh, way, way over my head on. I had a number of side hustles, all legal uh, side hustles, to, to, keep me, uh, to keep us going through seminary. Tiffany was working hard as well. The stress of raising kids and all that. And then the tension this was causing in our marriage. This was probably the lowest point in our marriage. I think that. I haven't asked Tiffany that yet. But uh, from my perspective, the lowest point in our marriage. And I remember telling Tiffany one night, I am through with prayer. I'm done. And I rolled over and I went to sleep. Now, I did pick prayer back up, in case you're wondering. <laughs> but how about you? Have you had those seasons or those moments in your life? 
when you felt this tension? Are you in this season or moment now where the grass seems greener on the other side? And what do we do with that? What do we need? Malachi, this morning, I believe has the answer for us. Because the reality is, when we are in the midst of our experience shattered dreams, often a cynical heart may not be far behind. And Malachi is going to point us to two promises and two people that we desperately need. Two promises and two people. But before I get into the promises, when it comes to the question of whether or not it is worth it to serve God wholeheartedly, the question is, do you see clearly? Here's why I ask that. The Israelites of Malachi's day did not see clearly. What they were focused on, let's just call it nearsighted vision, they were focused on the shattered dreams that were right in front of them. But their nearsighted vision is like my nearsighted vision. It's very blurry. Things right in front of me blur, which is why in, in my vision in the distance is, is really clear, which is why I put one contact in so I can actually read the Bible. And then with this eye, I can actually see you. The problem with the Israelites is everything was blurry in front of them. And here's what God wants to do for us. He wants to direct our vision off of our circumstances to the promises that he has laid out in front of us. And so we have two promises that we see here. There's a promise of a book and there's a promise of a day. Look at verse 16 at our first promise. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. So in the midst of this hard-hearted grumbling, there's this faithful remnant. Those who feared the Lord. That word fear is used three times. Those who feared the Lord, feared his name. It's those who are seeking to serve him wholeheartedly, to worship with a pure heart, to live in obedience to his scriptures. And what Malachi tells us is a book of remembrance was written of those faithful so this promise that there's a book. Now, this is not the only time this book shows up in Scripture. We have references to this book in uh, Moses spoke of it in Exodus 32. The psalmists speak of it a few times in Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 12. This book is referred to. And then we have a lot more clarity of this book in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So what's in this book? It's the names of those who belong to the Lord. And if I, can say it, if I could say it this way, this book is in permanent ink. Okay, so years ago, my wife and I, when we lived back in Lawrence, we did emergency respite foster care, meaning when children were in emergency and had to be taken from a home, we were a home that would receive those children. So there is, um, of all of them, I remember the most twin girls who stayed with us, and the next day when they left, I went in the room and I saw that they wrote their names in permanent marker on the wall of our room. I will never forget them, because I saw their name every day. <laughs> permanent marker. 
This is the book of life. It's in permanent ink. If anyone in here has any kind of irrational fear that God may lose this book, scriptures tell us in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16, the Lord declares to his people, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. God's people are safe and secure is this promise. And then look at how this promise continues in verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. That phrase, they shall be mine, it's actually shorthand for a promise that we see over and over in Scripture, the covenant promise. I will be your God, God's saying I'll be faithful, and you shall be my people, you will be mine. God says I will secure you. And then we see this promise that they will be God's treasured possession. Here's what Malachi is doing. We're at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi is pointing them back to this promise, all the way back to Exodus chapter 19, when God established them as his people and said, you are my treasured possession. God is helping them to not forget that great promise to them. God has not forgotten them. So, What's the first promise? Those who fear the Lord, those who honor his name, safe and secure in his hands. But God has a book, and in this book are his treasured possession. And then verse 18 moves us towards the second promise. It says, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Now, remember the complaint of the grumblers in the beginning of Mal or in Malachi 3.15, that the evildoers are the ones who prosper and they get away with it. And God is saying here, oh no, I see clearly. And you will see clearly that I do make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Your service of God is not in vain. This brings us to the second promise. Not only does God have a book in hand, God also has a day in mind. He has a day of distinction. This is chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This is severe warning. Now, when it comes to the Old Testament prophets, when they referred to this day of the Lord, it was, it was twofold. It was a day of judgment, judgment of evil, but it was also a day of salvation, salvation for God's people. And we see here that this day of judgment for the arrogant, for the evildoers, same people here. These are, the, these are the ones who arrogantly live their lives before the face of God as though they, God does not see their hearts that are hard towards him, as though they are not accountable to the scriptures, as though they are not accountable to God, as though they do not have to walk in his ways. And the promise here is that they will experience judgment. And this fiery judgment is the image of hell. This is a warning. But there's also this day, it's a day of salvation. So what's the promise for believers, for those who fear God, honor God? 
the day of the Lord, there's three things that are mentioned. For you who fear my name, I'm in verse 2, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You should go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked. It's a loaded, loaded promises. This is what we have on that day. It says, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So the day of the Lord, understand, was often in the Old Testament portrayed as a day of gloom and doom. But what Malachi is saying, what the Lord is telling us, is that but this day for believers is a day of glorious sunshine. This is what Isaiah the prophet pointed to in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. This is pointing to Jesus, who said, if you remember, in John chapter 8, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then... Look at the other promise of this day. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, if you are city folk, this may be lost on you. So I did Google it. I Googled calves leaping, right? And here's what I came up with. So a calf is like a cow or a bull within its first year. And here's the videos. Videos show these calves who were in their First year of life, they were born in like the gloomy winter days where they were within stalls and like in a warehouse. And then the first day of or spring when they're led out to pasture and they experience grass for the first time, they start tiptoeing on this grass and they start jumping for joy. It was actually quite entertaining to watch these videos. <laughs> this is, to me, what great image of, speaking of the grass being greener, of the new heavens and new earth, of what it's like for us to experience this new heaven and new earth. Can't imagine. And then this promise, you shall tread down the wicked, verse 3. Sounds harsh. Think about this. Throughout the Old Testament, what have God's people experienced? Oppression through wicked nations around them. And standing behind that oppression is Satan himself. And this is a promise. There will be no more oppression for the people of God. And then look how verse 3 ends. On that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. On that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now, who's promising this? The Lord of hosts. And this is key. Lord of hosts means essentially the Lord of the heavenly armies. Here's what we find that this phrase is used the most in the last three books of the Old Testament, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. Lord of hosts is used 23 times in the four chapters of Malachi. It's used the most in Malachi. And what's the significance here? What is God communicating with this name? If you think about it, during this time period, they're still under the rule of Persia. They have no king. They have no army. And God is saying, when your backup is against the wall, when you've got nothing, when you are hopeless and helpless, when your dreams are shattered, I've got your back. And we have a great picture of the Lord of hosts in 2 Kings chapter 6. 
I'm just going to briefly summarize this. 2 Kings chapter 6. Long story short, the king of Syria is pretty upset with Elisha, the prophet of God. Because Elisha keeps messing with his plans. So, king of Syria tracked down Elisha and during the night surrounded Elisha and his servant with his army of horses and chariots. Elisha's servant wakes up the next morning, looks out, sees the Syrian army surrounding them and says, Alas, his words, not mine, I don't speak like that. Alas, what shall we do? Elisha's response, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So at this point, Elisha is not only terribly fearful, but confused. Like, there's two of us and we're about to die. But Elisha prays, listen to this prayer. Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around the Syrians. To summarize the end of the story, spoiler alert, God won. <laughs> Lord of hosts is with us and he will win the day. So in light of the promises that God has a book in hand and he has a day in mind, what Malachi does is point us to two people. First, he points us to Moses. We see this in verse 4. It says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So here's what Malachi is doing. Malachi is pointing back, saying, remember the law of Moses. Now Horeb, he mentions Horeb, is another name for Mount Sinai. And what happened at Mount Sinai? That's where God claimed his people as his treasured possession and gave them the law to walk in obedience. And Malachi says, remember, remember the law. Now, the term remember in the Hebrew is not like our remember, meaning like growing up, my mom would say, remember to clean your room. I would remember, but I would not do it, right? <laughs> That's not the sense of remember. The sense of remember here is act on it, do it. So, obedience to God's commands. But sometimes we hate rules, right? Rules, rules, rules. Boring. And is the world right that our Bibles are just uh, a bunch of rules that cause us to have no fun? Is that, what, is that what the scriptures are? The answer is no. Um, God gives us the boundaries, his commands, his laws to lead us and guide us, especially in safety. When I think about this, I think about years ago, um, I took my family uh, to a beach vacation. We happened to be there on the morning after a storm had rolled in, so the waves were pretty strong, it was a little choppy. So I told my kids, all right kids, here's the deal. I'm gonna be sitting right here with your mother. You, I, I, you have boundaries. You can't go, you can't go anywhere beyond this flag over here and this flag over here and you can only go waist deep. And they're like, oh, Dad, you're trying to take away all our fun. Right? No, I don't want you to drift out to sea. Right? My boundaries are to keep you safe. And that is the heart behind the law of God, to actually free us to live for him. But the problem is God's people failed over and over in obedience. So what's the hope for sinners? 
What's the hope for covenant breakers? Like you, like me, the hope. Malachi points to the future, and this is where the second person comes into focus. Elijah. Verse 2. Or actually, sorry, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So what's the hope for God's people? God says, I will send you Elijah before that great and awesome day of the Lord. And what's the role of a prophet? Just to prepare God's people for the Lord. It is to call them to repentance. And we see this language here. When verse 6 says, turning the hearts, meaning turning the hearts back to covenant faithfulness, not only among people, but especially with God. What we find here is that Malachi ends with the threat of a curse in verse 6. Malachi is not a happy ending. The question is, who will undo this curse? And as we know, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, It's the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. After Malachi, there are 400 years of silence as God's people are waiting. Who will undo this curse? Who will rescue God's people? And that what we find is the next book in our Bibles, the Gospel of Matthew, opens up. And it's John the Baptist who is fulfilling this role of Elijah, the scriptures say, that is pointing to Jesus. And what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In the Gospel of John, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, as he's pointing to Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. Later in the Gospels, on the Mount of Transfiguration, who appears with Jesus? It's Moses and Elijah, these two that are named in Malachi. And why? They represent the whole Old Testament. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets, and Jesus is the fulfillment of their ministries. And what are they talking to Jesus about in the Mount of Transfiguration? Luke tells us his departure, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And what did Jesus accomplish? What did Jesus accomplish? Let me go back to the story of the ocean, our vacation. Remember how I told my kids to stay right there? in between those boundaries and not go very far. So Tiffany and I are sitting there in our chairs and we're watching and I notice one of my sons is beginning to drift further out than what I'm comfortable with. And I realize in one moment, he's actually in danger and I don't even think he knows it. So I get up out of my chair and I sprint into the water and I'm fighting through the waves to get to my son. And when I finally get out to him, he says, dad, I can't swim any longer. So I grab a hold of him And I pull him in, and we are fighting through the waves to get him back to shore so that he will be safe. We finally make it back to where we are waist high and able to stand up, start walking to the shore. I just happen to look back behind me, and I see a wave. I kid you not, it had to be 10 feet high. And right as it's about to crash on it, I grab my son as tight as I can. Wave hits us, spins us under the water, grinds us down into the sand, It was so forceful, I actually let go of my son. And I'm praying under the water, oh, Lord, please, please. Thankfully, I pop up out of the water. He pops up right next to me. We make it to the shore. We're safe. 
there's some bystanders that were watching this, and there's one woman in particular with a, uh, with a thick southern accent, if I can, for a little bit of comic relief, just imitate her. Here's what my family told me that she said, that dad was like Superman <laughs> fighting through those waves to rescue his son. I'm not making fun of southerners. I'm sharing this to highlight the hero of the story. And it is not me. I am the idiot dad who let my kids swim in a storm in the ocean. This illustrates the, two, uh, his, uh, the true hero and what he accomplished. We were just like my son, dead in the water. But what did God do? Sent Elijah to warn. And then he sent Jesus in. He sent Jesus into a storm, a storm of judgment. It was Jesus who was crushed by a wave of judgment. And the difference is Jesus did not let go. Jesus did not let go on the cross. He faithfully endured. And the cross, what did it allow? It allowed us to be secure, secured to God. And it was Jesus who declared in John 10, no one will snatch them out of my hand. So, what's the promise and hope this morning? In the midst of shattered dreams, God sees, he knows. For those who have trusted in Christ, your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You are secure. The question is, are you sure your name is written in that book? If you are one that makes a pro-con list of are you good enough to make it to heaven, the scripture says that if there are any cons whatsoever, if you've ever sinned, you're in trouble. You're dead in the water. Otherwise, why would, why would God have sent his son to die on a cross if you could make it on your own? Your only hope is to bow your knees and your hearts to the Lord because this other promise is true, that there is a day that is coming. It is the return of Christ when all things will be made right. The wicked will be judged, the righteous will experience the glory of God. And until that day, what does Malachi tell us? He tells us, look back. Look back and remember the law of Moses, right? Obedience. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will follow my commands. Do we delight? Do we delight in the word of God? Is this true of you, right? Malachi also points us forward and says, behold, I love that word. Behold is more than just to see. It is to have a life transformed. Behold, as we look to the future. So as God's people, we look back, we look back at the scriptures, but we also look back at the faithfulness of Christ on the cross. But we are different than the world. We look forward to a hope. Jesus will return. He will return. And then God calls us, in light of that, to live in light of his second coming. And I just want to end with Psalm 73, and then I'll go into it. Uh, I'll pray for us. The reason is Psalm 73, if you remember in the beginning, the psalmist was saying, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. But then the psalm changes when he understands the destiny of the wicked. And here's what the psalmist ends with. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are free or those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your deeds. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that this would actually be true of us, that we would be ones that would claim increasingly in our lives, who do we have in heaven but you? Nothing on earth that we have that we desire besides you. Help us to be people that are wholehearted in our worship, wholehearted in our faithfulness to your scriptures. Thank you for the promises of the book of Malachi, that you have a book in hand and you have a day in mind. And that is a glorious day for those who trust you. I do pray for any who are in here that have not trusted you, that they would come to faith, that they would realize their need to bow their knees and their hearts before you as their King of kings and Lord of Lord. We give you thanks, amen.